Hi, I'm Serena Farb. I'm the founder and creator of the online platform bornvegan.org, and I'm also the lead organizer and founder of the Worldwide Vegan Climate March. And I'm here with SoFlow Vegans. Welcome to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. We bring you vegan experts from around the world to talk about health, the environment, animal advocacy, and spreading compassion. It's our passion to help you navigate the vegan lifestyle by listening to the experiences of vegan influencers, doctors, and experts. Thanks for listening. This is the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And now your host, Sean Russell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Russell. And today we have Serena Farb, also known as Born Vegan, on our podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much, Sean. I'm excited to be here. So you were referred to me by a pillar in our community and he runs earth safe he goes by vegan man jeff you know yes jeff, absolutely jeff he's awesome <laughs> so yeah he had nothing but kind things to say and then when i looked at what you're up to i'm like there's so many things i want to talk to you about from your background as a teacher and in, in education because I, I that's that was my path as well into this innovative way of spreading this message and of course a lot of the other projects that you have going on but before we do that, we have a bit of a tradition here on the SoFlow Vegans podcast where we like to find out your vegan origin story. How did it all get started for you? Yeah. So for me, um, I think I have a pretty unique story, which is that I was actually born and raised vegan from conception, really. So my origin story really starts with my parents, particularly my mother who was a, also a scientist microbiologist, worked for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. And her job in the early 90s took her into factory farms, animal testing labs, chicken hatcheries. And what she saw firsthand there turned her into both an ethical and then later on as well, a health-oriented vegan. And But what she saw also made her really strong in her values at that time. And she knew she wanted to raise children who would also stand for justice, even when it was unpopular or controversial or, you know, outside the mainstream, which growing up vegan in Kansas mm -hmm. in the 1990s certainly was. So that's kind of where it started for me. And then when I was about seven years old, and, and we talked about it all the time, like I grew up attending vegan events and animal rights protests. Like we didn't just it wasn't just a diet. It wasn't just a fad or something that we did. So I grew up knowing why we did it and really sort of claiming that for myself. And so when I was about seven years old, my parents actually gave me my own food choices. They basically said, you know, up until this point, mm -hmm. we have read labels and decided what you were going to eat, et cetera. And then they said, you know, now you can read. We've taught you all the information. We've taught you all these things you might see on labels and how to figure out if something's vegan or not. And so then they said, you know, when you're our home will always be vegan. And they still more or less decide what I ate in the home because they were, you know, paying and cooking for the food. But they said, you know, now when you're out on your own at school or friends offer you things, it's up to you to read labels and make educated and informed choices for yourself. So it was really at that age when I 
chose to continue being vegan and, you know, didn't want to hurt animals and absolutely have never wavered from that. So I've now been vegan 28 years, pretty much. That's fascinating. And you hear a lot about families who are people who criticize families who have children that are vegan from birth. And it's interesting that you said at age seven, they gave you the choice. And I feel like that's a testament to how much they believe in the lifestyle and the teachings that they provided to you and to the fact that you've taken it to that next step (laughs) in your life with what you're doing today. So that's, I'm glad that that's how they did it because it very well could have been, they gave you no choice until you were 18. And then it's like 18, if you don't eat vegan, you get out of this house (laughs) or whatever the situation. So I'm glad the story took that turn. Um, Absolutely. But I'm curious, you know, growing up, obviously, curiosity and what have you, um, even before seven or whatever age, did you ever, were you ever at least curious as to what like these other foods taste like or why people were so fixated on them? You know, I really wasn't. And that's largely because I knew the why. Mm. And, you know, it was my parents started with like age appropriate conversations when I was a small child, like obviously I would see that people around me were eating different food or that it looked different. And they would say, you know, well, we love animals, so we don't eat them, which just made perfect sense to me. I, and I think most children are, are also born vegan and that we're very compassionate and children don't want to hurt animals. They love animals and they're taught to sort of separate and disengage from that at a young age by society, often by their parents. And so all my parents did was tell me the truth, which made perfect sense to me. And especially when they gave me my own food choices, that came with a lot of intentional education. So I had this stack of like 40 note cards or flashcards that had ingredients like casein, whey, and gelatin, like Mm. things you would commonly read on a food label. And the flip side of that flashcard had a description of like what it actually was and how it was made. And learning those, it was like, I didn't want to eat those. So I knew that what other people were eating was different. And to me, it was just, well, I know information they don't. And that was how my parents framed it, too, when it was like, well, if we love animals and we don't eat them, why do other people, you know, eat animals? And so it was really just obvious to me. And and they kind of framed it then as, well, we know this information, so we act differently they don't know this information yet, which is also what made me an activist at a very young age because I very naively believed all they needed was to be told the truth like I was. And then they would, everyone in the world would change when they knew this information. But so because I knew that and because I'd gone to sanctuaries and met living, breathing animals that had been rescued from the food system, I never had any interest or intention of trying meat, dairy or eggs ever in my life. And, you know, you mentioned some interesting components to your life that would make this seem extremely difficult growing up for you and your family. The fact that you were in the heart of the Midwest or the heart of America, um, Mm -hmm. Kansas. And, you know, so tell me, like, what was it like? What was your experience like growing up? Obviously, everything was kind of locked down and solid with your family, but I'm sure going to school presented some challenges. 
Yeah. So I also did a lot of different education at the time. So I went to Montessori schools, Waldorf schools, did a little bit of homeschooling and public school mixed in as well. So throughout my education, I tried lots of different things. And when I was pretty young, like seven, eight-ish, that was a time when I was largely homeschooling. But I did do competitive gymnastics at that time. So that was sort of my main social you know, interaction with um a more mainstream segment of the population. I was at the gym three to five times a week for several hours and they would have fundraisers and we'd have competitions and, you know, get goodie bags filled with candy. And that was where my activism actually really started. Like I have distinct memories of getting these goodie bags filled with candy at gymnastics meets. And then I would just give away all, I'd read the labels, see what was vegan or not, which at that point, it was pretty much none of it. And <laughs> give it, um, you know, give it away. And kids would ask, you know, why can't you eat this? And because I had my own food choices at that age, I would say, well, I can, I choose not to. Mm. And they'd say, you know, why do you choose not to? And then often I would proceed to describe like in graphic detail, well, that has gelatin. And do you know what gelatin is? And I have this memory like of one girl in particular having this conversation and I was so happy that she was asking. And in my head, I was certain that like once I told her what gelatin was and how it was made, she would also not want to eat the candy. Mm-hmm. And I remember describing this and then her looking at me and going, so whatever. And then, you know, popping mm-hmm. the candy in her mouth. And I was just sort of dumbfounded. Like, I just told you something so horrible and gross. Like, how can you not care about this? And that really... That was honestly like when people ask, like, what was the hardest part about growing up vegan? It wasn't the lack of options or the not being able to eat certain things or fit in. It was really feeling like I saw an injustice. I saw something going on that made so much sense to me. Like we had an alternative. We didn't have to do this. We didn't have to eat these things and participate in this system. And it was very hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that other kind, caring people and friends that I knew in these environments didn't see what I saw. And when they did know the information, didn't care about it or act on it. And that was sort of something that I was continually sort of struggling with and trying to wrap my head around. So how did, and and I, I completely agree with you. And for me, going vegan and then seeing that. And, and I'd be, I'd admit when I first went vegan, it wasn't 100% for the animals. It was more of a byproduct. Like I know by mm-hmm. eating this way, it supports the animals. And I could just check that off my list of like, I don't have to worry about me contributing to that. But it wasn't mm-hmm. until I start meeting people and seeing their passion and their love and, and compassion for animals that I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, I could really say now that I'm doing it for the animals, but then you start seeing people in your lives, your family members, the slide joke <laughs> here, the, you know, so how do you cope with that now as an adult? Whereas maybe the same situation you just described when you were younger. Yeah, I mean, as a child, I didn't have great coping strategies, especially, and part of it was my parents framed that, you know, veganism for me that way as a kid, when it was like, well, why are other people doing this? It made sense that they could have sort of framed it as, well, we know this information, they don't, which is what led me to saying and doing a lot of the things I did. Now, as an adult, I recognize it's a lot more complicated than that. There's lots of social and psychological pressures and things that have to be overcome. 
And so I don't have the naivety that I did as a child. And in many ways, I'm a lot more pessimistic than I used to be. I kind of, I have a recognition that there's a lot of horrible stuff that goes on in the world, whether it's, you know, people or animals or the environment. And I don't have as much, you know, I don't, I'm not as attached to the outcome of every interaction and conversation I have like I used to be. So that allows me, like, I still do what I do and I care, but I don't go into every single conversation with people, whether it's street outreach or a speaking gig or friends and family. I don't go into every one of those conversations thinking I'm going to tell people the truth. And then obviously they're going to change from this. I'm much more detached from that expectation and that outcome. And now I kind of view things as I can't really force anyone to change. I recognize lots of people, even when they get this information, won't change. So all I'm here to do is share the truth, is to share this information. And then I'm just hands off. Like I'm there if people want more information, but I've really detached myself from that expectation that people are immediately going to change. And that's made it a lot easier to cope with and kind of just recognize like often change is slower than we'd like. And, and at the same time, I have hope because it's planting seeds. And I know Mm -hmm. I'm more familiar with the social change research about like people need to hear things, you know, seven to 10 times sometimes or be exposed to an idea before they change. And that at the same time, things, there's always been problems in the world. Like we're, we don't live in a utopia. We're (laughs) probably not going to, so I'm just here to keep trying to raise awareness and and plant seeds and hope that these little, you know, seeds of change are planted and inspire progress. But, you know, I'm I'm just here to do the sharing information part and what people do with that information is up to them. So you're you're being the example and meeting people where they are, but also being prepared to have conversations. Yeah, really- absolutely. <laughs> And, and and that's that's the thing too. And I feel like it's not even just with veganism, but with just any idea that you bring forth in general, it's one being that which you're talking about, because people can sniff out an authentic um when you're not being authentic. <laughs> I was looking for the inverse for that. Um, but <laughs> before we get into the vegan climate march and get into the v- vegan van tour, I want to know a little bit more about your background in education because when I read in your bio that you were a um a high school teacher and you taught science, chemistry, right? Yeah. You talk chemistry. Um, I was like, I was thinking that's super fascinating because you can approach things from a different perspective than most people. And I see that in a lot of the conversations you have and the topics that you, when you go on on tours, when you're speaking, you kind of mm-hmm. talk, speak into that. So let's give us a little bit of background about your education, your, your life in education. <laughs> yeah. So in high school was kind of when I really got into science because you know, part of my homeschooling journey was that I grew up competing in science fairs every year for like eight years. And doing that and the science fair world for people who don't know is, it's pretty wild. It's not just like, you know, oh, I'm going to do a little experiment in school and show it like there's a whole science fair network where you're traveling to like uh, kids in high school usually will spend months, if not years, researching in like college professors' labs doing graduate level or beyond research projects that they enter into science fairs. 
that and compete at like, you know, state, national and international levels. So it's a lot more intense than people sometimes realize. And so I kind of got into that world in high school and spent like my junior and senior year of high school largely working in a professor's lab at the University of Kansas near where I lived doing my own independent research. I was really lucky that I basically had this idea and a professor was like, yes, you can come use my lab. And she taught me a lot in the process because I didn't really know fully what I was doing when I first got into that position. So that really kind of started my love of research. And at the same time, some of the experiences I had in science fairs in high school also showed me like just how corrupted and biased much of the scientific industry is. And so part of it was because my research at the time was on bisphenol A, like BPA, the chemical that leaches from plastic water bottles. Mm -hmm. And I had an experience where in this particular biotech competition, a judge more or less, you know, told me like that he wasn't going to vote for my project because he just disagreed with the entire premise of it because he worked for like the plastics and paper industry that used BPA. And I was so confused. I was like, I cite like 30 to 50, you know, like references in my paper of other scientific research. Like, this isn't just (laughs) my opinion. And, you know, having him just be like, I just disagree with your project because I think BPA is safe because I work for this industry was like, you know, it was a wild experience. But at the same time, like, I, I really grew to love science and science research And so I went into college and got my degree in biochemistry and, you know, worked in some other labs throughout that time and originally believed I was going to go get my PhD in biochemistry, you know, work in a lab and do research. But throughout college, my interest kind of shifted and I became more interested in, you know, activism and outreach. And I was a little bit tired of spending so much time in a lab by that point. And uh, so I ended up leaving that, tried a few other things, and then had always loved teaching, always seen myself as an educator through my activism, my young childhood, you know, through other work I'd done. And so I kind of came back to science then post-college through the education route and began teaching um, chemistry at a private high school in Kansas City. And then also advanced placement, like AP environmental science. I taught that as well. So I ended up teaching both of those things and I loved it. Like, I feel like in my heart, I am an educator. That's really the best description of like what I'm most passionate about. But, and I, I, so I really love that teaching. I loved building the relationship with those students, but I became frustrated that I felt like I was teaching facts and information that weren't that applicable to students' lives, that weren't Mm. the most important scientific ideas and concepts I could be teaching. And that really was what led me to, you know, doing more on the vegan education side and quitting my actual high school teaching position. We want to hear from you. Visit our website to ask a question, leave a comment, or tell us how much you love the show. We'll play some of your messages during the episode, as well as directly to our guests. So be sure to leave your name and city and visit SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. Okay, so 
now we're moving on this timeline now. Thank you for sharing that background information. So you left the teaching profession and what comes next for you in terms of your, your vegan journey? Yeah. So I basically left that and decided that, um, I wanted to teach and speak. Speaking had always been a passion of mine and I'd already been doing some, you know, creating YouTube videos around veganism and the combination of science and ethics as well. Podcast I kind of started and then I really, that was just really my passion and I decided to kind of go all in on that and really focus on doing more speaking. But that was also right at the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down. So I ended up doing mostly online content creation, you know, blogging, Instagram, YouTube, really combining like my interest in science, you know, creating video presentations that had, you know, references to the science and information and sustainability and health and nutrition and ethics, you know, all of that. And then it's really just now that I'm, I'm starting to get to the stuff that I wanted to do, which was the in-person speaking and presentations. And I should backtrack and add one thing, which is that while I was teaching high school, I also had the opportunity to create, develop, and teach like a three-day vegan intensive workshop for around 80 high school students. Like I did it two years in a row, 40 the first year and about 40 the second year. And that was an amazing experience. And I absolutely loved getting to directly teach sort of the science and ethics of veganism. And so that's kind of where I'm at now, coming back to that and doing that more full-time. And speaking about where you are at right now, you are in a van, which is part of your activism. So you want to tell us a little bit about how that got started in that project? Yeah. So I've been, you know, since the, you know, things have been open again, really wanting to get back into schools, teaching, giving vegan presentations, kind of traveling around speaking. And at the same time, I had a friend who had this camper van, the one that I'm in right now. She actually had built it out. So it has solar panels on the roof that power what I'm doing and, you know, a bed and everything. And she had been living in it and decided she was ready to sell it and upgrade to a bigger van that she's building out. And I kind of got this idea in my head, like, if I bought this, this would be perfect for traveling around and speaking. And then, you know, I talk a lot about being the change that we want to see, being that walking billboard and that wherever you go in your life or whatever you do, you are a living example of the way you want the world to be and, and setting, you know, saying, here's my values and what I care about. And so I thought like, what better way to do that than cover the outside of the van with educational information so that wherever I'm going or driving or doing, I'm hopefully planting seeds of information and, you know, vegan education for people to think about. And so I just went for it. I did that and I gave up. And then I didn't originally plan to actually move into the van. I thought I would just use it for occasional trips and speaking. And it just kind of made sense. And so I ended up like selling half my stuff, putting the rest of it in storage, leaving my apartment and moving full time into the van, traveling around, speaking and uh, doing vegan education. And that's that's a movement now, right? Like I forget what it's called. Um, what's the movement called where people are like doing that? Van life or nomad, digital nomads. <laughs> and how and how are you? How long have you been doing it? And like, what are what have been some of the the benefits that have come out of that? I've been doing it for a couple months since about mid August, 
And it's definitely an adjustment. And (laughs) I would say probably not for everyone. It has its ups and its downs, but mostly I really like it. I already love traveling. So this is a really neat way of traveling, but you know, I've, I've had to get pretty minimalistic. I, it was hard for me to give up my kitchen because I loved cooking and my kitchen in the van consists of an instant pot, which is still great, but you know, no oven, no big counters, no sinks, you know, all of that. So that's been an adjustment and I've been getting very creative with lots of new different one pot instant pot meals, but it's kind of fun and it allows me to travel and have flexibility and have all the stuff I need, you know, with me as I go as well. So how many places have you traveled to so far and what have been some of the standouts for you? So far, I've been to New York, upstate and New York City, Maine, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Washington, D.C. area, Virginia, North Carolina, and now Florida, where I am. And (laughs) honestly, I am a big fan of New York City. Like, I feel like that's pretty (laughs) classic, but there's just, I love the excitement. I'm very extroverted. I love being around people. And in terms of vegan stuff, there are just so many different events, potlucks, meetups, activism, like so much going on in New York. I love that bustling, thriving, constantly finding stuff to do and, and people to work with. And that's that was really cool. And um, so my ears perked up. You're in Florida. So which whereabout in Florida are you? I'm in St. Pete right now. Okay. Are you planning to come further south to South Florida at any point? Maybe if I come back in like uh, March, I might, okay. but I'm only here for a week now before I start heading up north again. So probably not coming down to South Florida. <laughs> so whenever, but whenever you do, if it's March or whenever, reach out, please. We could do something yeah. really cool down here. Um, Absolutely. Sure some, some events going to be happening. So you talked about the van. You talked about you know your background in education. Let's talk, talk a little bit about the vegan climate march that's happening in 2023. Yeah. So I've also, you know, been involved in environmental activism for a long time. And in 2019, I participated in some of the climate strikes. And that was while I was teaching high school. And so I got to support a number of students from our school in participating in the youth climate strikes. And that was really cool. But as, you know, people that are in the environmental movement and vegan may know, there is a huge Mm -hmm. lack of focus and conversation around what I believe to be the biggest contributor to all of our environmental and climate problems, which is animal agriculture. So it's very frustrating for me to see, like I love seeing the momentum and focus, and then I feel like there isn't a clear call to action or clear demands or like a solution. And we have a solution that would be hugely impactful. And it can start with us as individuals. It We need you know, systemic change for this as well. But what I love about, you know, veganism is that we as individuals have the power to stop supporting a system that's causing lots of harm and to influence others. And and it's something that we can do right now that really has a tangible impact and sets that example. So I kind of had this idea of like, we really need a vegan climate march, a movement you know, kind of modeled after the youth climate strikes, but that really has a clear demand 
for transforming our food system to a veganic, ethical, and sustainable plant-based food system. And additionally, one of the other things that was really important to me with this is I also have been involved with and support lots of sort of anti-corporate, like more the food movement, as some people call it, right? Like anti-GMO and Monsanto, anti-corporate control of our food supply, supporting like local backyard and, and the vegan side of that for me, right? Vegetable farming, um, communities taking control of their own food supply and food system. And so I really wanted to use this as an opportunity to sort of combine those two, supporting you know, the local community-based gardens, sustainable, vegan, organic, you know, not corporate-focused solutions, and also combining ethical, vegan, <laughs> plant-based with that. So we're really calling for a veganic, you know, vegan and or, you know, organic, sustainable food system as a solution to the environmental and climate crisis. And how can somebody get involved with this? Like, how does it look in terms of um, our participation? Yeah. So right now, and this will be taking place May 6th, 2023. So right now we're really in the stage of trying to get um, city organizers. So it's, it's a worldwide climate march. So our goal is to have marches, sort of sister marches happening in as many cities around the world as possible, all on the same day so that we, you know, have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people showing up, calling for individuals to go vegan and demanding a veganic food system so that we can get media attention and kind of raise some awareness around this issue, even calling on local governments to, you know, endorse like a plant-based treaty and kind of change their practices. So right now, individuals that want to get involved can go to our website and sign up to get on our email list. So they'll find out when marches are happening. And on a higher level, if anyone wants to be a city organizer and actually take that step in organizing a march in their city or region, we also are really looking for people to step up and do that around the world. We have we have a number of cities already signed up, including like we have New York City, we have London, we have LA, we have Hong Kong, we have some cities, we have a city in Nigeria and Kenya, actually. So we already have a pretty worldwide presence, but we just want to get as many cities as possible. So, you know, we have a form on our website for city organizers where you can fill out and sign up so that, and we'll be in touch soon guiding people through that process of how to actually organize and plan a march in their city as well. So there's kind of the two ways people can get involved, both on our website at veganclimatemarch.org. Okay. And um, definitely go ahead and check that out. And if you're listening from any city, the best bet I'm guessing is just to see on the page, you will already have the cities that are listed so they don't try to yeah, so we're a little behind on that one. We are, hopefully we'll be updating our map soon. But right now, we're just asking everyone to do it. And then if there's multiple organizers in the city, we'll connect people. You know, the more organizers and collaboration we get, the better. Okay. So as, as we start to wind the podcast down, I really want to start stepping into some tips and some some advice for people who are maybe at the beginning of their journey, or maybe they've, you're in the middle, or maybe they're veterans and they just want to see kind of like what you're doing. You know, you've been doing it since birth. So I'm sure you have some, you've packaged some um, best practices along the way. Uh, what would you recommend to someone who just started their journey? Like, what are some things that you wish, it's a little different in your case, <laughs> but that you 
even still, like you wish you would have known as an adult going into this? Yeah. So, I mean, practically in terms of making the transition to, you know, eating more plant foods or a vegan lifestyle, I think one of the biggest suggestions that I give people, and it's a way I really like looking at changes, is focus on the positive side of things. Focus on what you're adding in rather than what you're excluding. And this is true, like, if you're maybe a junk food vegan looking to eat healthier or you want to try, you know, whole foods or raw or whatever, you know, it is, I find it is so much easier and more helpful to think about, like, adding in those plant foods, adding in, like, oh, if, I, if I'm a coffee drinker in the morning, um, let me try a bunch of different plant-based milks and figure out what my favorite milk is and focus on, like, adding that in and using some plant-based option rather than, like, just cutting out animal-based foods. And I think that's a really good way of framing it because then it feels less like deprivation and that's less, it's less likely to lead you to, you know, eating a meal that you would have normally eaten minus something. When you think about what you're adding in, whether it's greens or more fruit to your diet, you're focusing on that positive, on those new things you're trying, on trying new foods or new recipes, which I think makes it much easier and much more sustainable than just like, oh, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing, but cut this, this, and this out. So adding those things in and then eventually just letting, you know, the, all the new foods and all the plants you're adding in crowd out those non-vegan things. And I think that is kind of naturally what happens. And, and this is my experience, right? When it comes to eating healthier, when I try to eat healthier, like right now in particular, I'm trying to eat a lot more fruit. I realized I was not eating enough fruit in my diet. And I really like how I feel when I eat a more high fruit and add a lot more raw foods into my diet. So rather than thinking like, oh, I'm not going to eat this, this, or this, these cooked foods, I'm just trying to eat as much fruit, you know, the first half of the day or in the morning as I can. And by doing that, it just kind of crowds out the other things that I would have eaten um, in that place. And I think the same is true when people transition to a plant-based or vegan lifestyle. And so I, I highly recommend that. And, and really learning new things when it comes to cooking. I think there are hurdles that, you know, make it more difficult and that have to be overcome. And learning to cook so you're not just dependent on restaurants or fast mm -hmm. food is really, really helpful and will allow you to enjoy vegan food and expanding your palate and, and, you know, what you eat more again than a more restriction-based mindset of like, oh, I don't know how to cook. I'm just going to order what I can or keep eating, you know, frozen meals, which all, you know, those other packaged things are really great, you know, uh, substitutes as you're in the transition as well. But I think it's much easier to, you know, in the long run, learn to cook and eat a more whole foods diet because I think it's more sustainable and will be more enjoyable in the long run. And then um, and along those lines, what would you say are some misconceptions that people have about the vegan lifestyle that um, you would be able to shed some light on? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of nutrition, of course, and growing up vegan, there are still lots and lots of misconceptions around children needing high protein or needing to drink cow's milk for strong bones or, you know, growing children need animal protein and meat. And those are all just flat out wrong. I am a living example. I did gymnastics. I've done 
cross country. I've run several half marathons and, and you don't need those things at all. And that's a huge misconception. And, and in particular, I'd add, because people do ask me this a lot, like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to try and raise my kids vegan. I'm super worried. Like, what do I need to focus on doing right? Or I'm really scared that, you know, vegan kids are going to be malnourished. And I like to reframe this because while I think we do need to make sure, of course, that we're feeding our children healthy and doing things as best as we can, this is kind of, um, it wrongly puts the focus on vegan diets as being something we have to be extra careful about nutrition with, when I think really it should apply to everyone across mm-hmm. the board, because non-vegan diets, not only are they actually what's a bigger cause of killing people in our society via heart disease and diabetes today, but like you look at chronic constipation, which is one of the biggest mm. causes of morbidity in children. And it's due to lack of fiber in their diets. So why are we so focused, you know, on our vegans doing it right? When I think we should be equally focused, if not more focused on our non-vegans doing it right. I don't think there is a right way to do it, but it's like people get so concerned about vegans doing it right, which again, I think parents across the board, you should be concerned about health and nutrition and making sure you're not just feeding your kids junk food. But I think the focus is misplaced. And I like to reframe that as everyone, regardless of whether you're eating animal foods or plant foods, you can eat processed and unhealthy junk food. You can lack vitamins and nutrients, or you can eat a healthier whole foods diet. And veganism is kind of separate from that. It's not that unique that I think we need to be extra concerned or more concerned about the healthfulness and nutrition of it versus, you know, a non-vegan lifestyle. And thank you for sharing those points. And yes, you know, one of the big things I hear is B12. And while I will agree that, you know, you you do want to look into taking a supplement, Mm -hmm. but to your echo your point, it's not just vegans that need to look at that as well. You know, you got to look at where you're getting it from. You know, animals inherently aren't producing the B12. They're getting it from the soil. But now with the Mm -hmm. way animal agriculture is, is, is that they're actually being injected or having those supplemented into them because they're not getting it from the, so it's like, where are you getting your, 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 your nutrition from Mm -hmm. is important. And I feel like one of the things that happened when I went vegan is um, actually, I went vegan for health, so I was already kind of looking at my health. But I think mm-hmm. being vegan going on 10 years now, I am not as prone to eating, you know, those junk foods that I like eating the burger, overindulging in Burger King and all these different things, mm-hmm. even though there are options now. <laughs> but, you know, it's like you want to eat a little bit cleaner. You're going to hold off when you're going to the gas station and not picking up those chips because there's not a lot of options. So you kind of get your groove on the types of foods you like. And and I feel like all these apps that are out there and there's a lot of resources, but, um, and I'm going to end on this part and then we're going to start winding down. Community is huge. Um, That was one of the things that allowed me to stay vegan for 10 years. And just because if you don't have an answer, you can ask someone and they'll be, it's a lot quicker than Google. So, um, and you also feel that camaraderie of people who are going through it the same with you and it feels less like you're alone. So um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And let us know 
you know, you've talked about a lot of the initiatives you're doing, but just kind of let us know at um, at this point, kind of where we can get more information and or if maybe there's something I forgot to talk about, um, let us know about that as well. Thank you. have covered everything, but my website, bornvegan.org, you can see some of my blog posts. It has links to my YouTube, my Instagram, my social media pages, and I have an email list. I do not send that many emails out, so it's pretty minimal. But if you want to sign up for it, you'll get updates and hear about, you know, where I'm going on my van tour and things like that. So bornvegan.org. And then Instagram is probably my biggest, most active uh, social media platform right now. And I post like short videos and reels and what I'm doing and where I'm going. And if you're interested in sort of following my van tour or learning more about van life, I do a lot of that on Instagram. So those are the main ways you can find me and all everything can be linked to from my website. So you can find all the stuff I'm doing on there. And one last time, that website? Bornvegan.org. And, 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 the, and the podcast, tell us a little bit about the podcast. Yeah. So I have a podcast also on my website. It's on Spotify and uh, iTunes as well. It's called Science is Gray. And that was kind of my way of doing a little bit more on the sciencey side of things and focusing on the intersection of science and ethics and social justice in society. So the premise of that is basically science is gray. You know, media portrays it as black and white, but science is not inherently ethical or moral, you know, just on its own. The reality is it's just a set of tools and a system for, you know, asking questions, researching things and collecting data, we as humans have to apply our ethics and moral framework to the way that we conduct science, to the questions we ask, to the way we collect data. And that, you know, shapes it. There's biases, all kinds of things like that. So my episodes, you know, talk about a range of different things, largely focused on our food and agriculture system and science and ethics within that. So it's a pretty vegan focused podcast, but I kind of go behind the scenes talking about corruption in science, talking about, you know, how big industries like the animal ag industry influence and bias things, and just delving into the gray areas of where science and ethics intersect um, and how they're not always clear or things aren't always black and white in society. Okay. And then you get that on your website at bornvegan.com, correct? Dot .org. Bornvegan.org. Bornvegan.org. Yes. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So the last thing that we're going to do is this is a segment that we do at the end of each episode where I allow our guests to have the final word to say a message, something that maybe they've been thinking about, or it could be a summary of what we've talked about. I'll leave it to you. And then, yeah, when you're done, that will be the conclusion of the episode. All right. Um, I guess what I'd say here is, you know, I hear lots of things when I'm out in the world talking to people about veganism and I hear lots of legitimate concerns, which I think there are, but at the same time, the reality is I think lots of the things that people bring up or think are stumbling blocks or hurdles to them living vegan and not you know, participating in the unnecessary exploitation of animals are excuses. And I know sometimes that can be an unpopular thing to say. People don't like to hear it. They don't want to know that. 
But I think there is that is the reality a lot of the time is that we really need to reframe our mindset when we're thinking about this. And, and one way that's really easy to do that is at the end of the day, if we put ourselves in the position of the victims, who are the animals that get harmed and abused and exploited by our food system, whatever we think is going to be difficult, whether that's taking a little bit more time learning how to cook or spending a little bit more money or having to expand our taste buds, or maybe not eat what once was our favorite food and not having that again. These sometimes seemingly big inconveniences or hurdles that in the reality, you know, at the end of the day, when we reframe it to think about, do these minor inconveniences or the literal life and death and suffering of another being matter more? And what are our values? Do we care about not unnecessarily harming animals? Do we care about peace and justice? And if we do, are we living in alignment with that? Or or are we making excuses and things that, yes, they might take a little bit more effort or work to put in and change our habits or overcome these barriers, but what do we really care about and how much do we really care about it? And if we say we really care about these things, then it might be time to stop making excuses and actually put that little extra effort in and figure out how to overcome these hurdles so that we can truly live in alignment with our values. You've been listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. As you can see, our passion is to help people navigate the vegan lifestyle. Having on vegan experts from around the globe, Sean is the founder and, of course, the host of SoFlow Vegans, an organization created to help make South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at SoFlow Vegans. Find the show and more at SoFlowVegans.com slash podcast. And for questions or comments, send an email to contact at SoFlowVegans.com. Our food is grown, not born. See you next time.